Australians have been trying to exterminate or control animal species for so long, most of us seldom question the logic behind it. After colonisation, we started killing native species because they made holes in farms, ate chickens and eggs, and threatened sheep. So we killed dingoes, quolls, hawks and tassie tigers, just to name a few. Then rabbits got out of hand, and there weren't many dingoes around to kill them, so we did it. Now dingoes are vulnerable, and we cull kangaroos, cats, rabbits and other species at a cost of hundreds of billions of dollars Our media is awash with justifications for this form of environmental control. But is exterminating animals actually achieving our goals? What are those goals? And what is the cost to our environment? Should we consider the suffering involved? And what would change if we just stopped? Today I'm speaking with Dr Eamon Worcester, a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Technology, Sydney, who says killing both introduced and native wildlife isn't working and should stop. I didn't realise that Australia has water buffalo. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah, we've got a really diverse range of megafauna that came over with... um Mostly British colonialists, yeah. All right. Okay, so it's been a long time. Yeah, and Australia has something like six or seven species of deer as well, and about mm. half of them are critically endangered in their native range. Oh, wow. So it's acting like a refuge for, for some endangered species. It's like the rabbit as well, and living around Sydney, they're endangered in their native range. Really? Or vulnerable, one of the two. Where is that, their native? Uh, the Iberian Peninsula. Right. Yeah. Amazing. They're, <laughs> so they're thriving here and they're endangered there. Exactly, yeah. Remarkable. It's just really interesting contrast where you know they're they're pests and vermin over here but in the native range they're trying to save them incredible is that a recognized strategy of conservation no not really so um these species that occur outside of the native range are generally excluded from biodiversity counts or from assessments of their population by things like the IUCN red list um they're generally excluded so we don't see um these animals represented in counts of their abundance or diversity or populations generally. Is that something you'd like to see changed? I think it's important to recognise that animals across that exist where they exist, I think it's important to know that if there's, you know, a critically endangered deer species here, that it's important to know that there's a large population in Australia that's thriving it. I think it recontextualises how we think about both those populations. The one in Australia might become more important. The one wherever else is equally important, but we know that there's a safeguard population as well if this one continues to decline. So compassionate conservation, can you explain what that is? Yeah, so compassionate conservation is the idea that some of the conservation practices that people undertake are inherently unethical. So there's things like large-scale killing that we don't support, and it recenters conservation instead of being about populations, recenters it as individuals that matter. And we try to do no harm in preserving individuals and also preserving the collectives as well. And what sort of methods can you use as alternatives to killing? In Australia, we have a lot of small mammals and other population species that are declining. And we actually see that preventing things like land clearing and large-scale agriculture helps prevent those declines. And then reinstating things like apex predators to control smaller predators, which then promotes the prey species that are declining, really seems to help. So when we stop and limit large-scale disturbances, it seems to reverse that sort of stuff instead of um, 
promoting killing, which seems to exacerbate the problem. Mm -hmm. So can you give an example of where that's happened in Australia or elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. In the middle of Australia, we've seen a mass small mammal extinction and decline. And that's really driven by a lot of habitat fragmentation and decline. And then in areas where we're trying to limit small mammal decline, what we tend to do is poison predators. We put out 1080 across these massive landscapes and that kills foxes and sometimes cats as well as they scavenge and eat the poison. So some work by Arian Wallach in 2010 showed that when you stop killing these predators, the dingoes come back and they limit the amount of foxes and cats in the area and that helps promote small mammal populations. So it was the cessation of that poison that really brought back those populations. Right, okay. Would there ever be situations where you have to make an ethical choice? Which species do we save, the native one or the introduced predator? Yeah, so that's a question that's posed quite regularly and, I mean, it's impossibly challenging, right, because you have you either save one species or another and those sorts of situations only really happen, at least as far as I'm aware, on, like, those offshore islands with massive seabirds with, like, introduced rats that eat the eggs. That's the really common situation that we get. And I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't know what you do in those situations. You have to make a judgment call and it just has to be the one that people are most okay with and it's an impossible situation. So you either save the birds or you save the rats and that's a judgment call that wildlife managers make and faced with that situation, I don't know what I do. I don't know. It's like the trolley problem. Do you know the trolley problem? It's exactly problem? the trolley problem, yeah. If you're unfamiliar, the trolley problem is a thought experiment which poses ethical questions, such as, if a train were going to run over five people, would you flip a switch to divert it to a track where it would only kill one person? Of course, once you've answered, other variables are introduced to make the question even more ethically curly. So, compassionate conservation, is it against killing in all circumstances or just when it's avoidable? So it's a diverse school of thoughts. There's people on either end of the spectrum. Some people think within compassionate conservation that in those situations you would kill the rats, but others think that killing is completely off the table. I tend to sit somewhere in the middle. I'm not really not really sure what you do in those situations, but other people would say that you either kill the rats or you let nature run its course and hope that the birds evolve and respond in response to the predation threat, and then they hopefully don't go extinct but some people are against killing in all capacities and others aren't yeah it's a it's not really a one-size-fits-all kind of thing it's people have diverse views within the group yeah you had some studies on introduced megafauna Mm. into australia our megafauna went extinct what yeah the the last pleistocene right and those papers were saying that some of these introduced horses and donkeys could kind of recreate some aspects of the landscape Mm. from back then. What's desirable about that? Yeah, these large herbivores, they do really diverse and important things like biotubate soil and move seeds around and control fuel loads for fires to prevent massive, massive scale wildfire. And when those animals went extinct, we lost that ecological function. So we have large gaps in the things that happen in Australian landscapes that large herbivores tend to do. And by those animals being reintroduced, it's made the world more functionally rich and diverse, which is generally considered a good thing to have a more diverse group of functions in in Australia or elsewhere as well. Are there always benefits, though? I mean, surely sometimes I could imagine that there aren't any obvious benefits in having introduced species. Is that is that the case, or...? Uh, I mean, it's a... Benefits is like a funny way to put it because I think we we put these value judgments on nature about whether it's good or bad, but nature just is. So whether we have more of Y or more of Z, it doesn't seem to... 
it, it's, it's not good or bad. I think it just is. Mm-hmm. So having inherent benefits, I mean, it's a good thing to have more biotubated soil. It means that more plants grow and you have seed dispersal across these large landscapes. So, But I mean, there's also other things that they do as well, like uh, trample water holes or they, you know, there's the whole Kosciuszko Brumbies thing that's very controversial as well. So I think there's diverse schools of thought on the role of large herbivores but there's there's no denying that those impacts could be perceived as good by some people and bad by others but it's they just are what they are yeah Mm -hmm. i guess at the heart of compassionate conservation it's about doing and correct me if i'm wrong as little harm as possible to living things is that right yeah and trying to i guess like limit human interference yeah not necessarily interference but limit human harm yeah right okay and then what are the values of the conventional approach how do they differ well, I think that conservationists are, are, I mean, they're inherently compassionate people as well. They're trying to save the world, right? That's the whole reason people become conservationists or get involved in conservation. But I just think that some of the methods that we choose to use, whether it be the government or otherwise, they don't consider the role of individuals, the pain and suffering that they cause for individuals. And sometimes the methods like we use, like large-scale predator control, are really ineffective and actually waste to the taxpayer money. So predator control is a really good one where it's really ineffective. It doesn't do the things that we we want it to do but we keep doing it because i guess we're trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube yeah yeah exactly it's this idea that we want to turn australia back into what it was pre uh, pre-colonization and that's just a that's just a goal that a lot of people are starting to realize and we talk about that just seems unattainable there's no getting rid of foxes and cats and other large herbivores and other introduced species across australia it's just a kind of pie in the sky goal and we'll just never it doesn't seem like we'll ever be able to get there it's a magical day in the future that people wish for but there's no clear path to get there so we think that instead we should just be looking at the world the way it is and then we can figure out how everyone can live together in these spaces instead of trying to exclude others and kill them in ways that is ineffective and doesn't achieve the goals that we're actually trying to achieve yeah i guess You can look at an ecosystem in terms of states of stability and states of change, right? Mm. And we have obviously introduced a lot of instability and that's creating a lot of change in the ecosystem. And I guess it seems to me by committing to continually eradicate certain animals that we see as pests, we're kind of committing to that being the new stability in a way that we're we're sort of playing that role in the ecosystem i'm not sure that human predation is actually doing what we think it does it's not really stabilizing populations what we do is when we kill these animals on mass scales we just cause harm we don't actually reduce their populations that kind of control doesn't actually do what we want it to do and i suppose what compassionate conservation says as a counterpoint to that is that we should be learning about nature and trying to figure out what it is now and then trying to create states of being within these ecosystems that promote stability across these systems and prevents extinction in turn as well so the classic australian example is promoting dingoes, stopping poisoning them, protecting them and allowing them to regulate the system. I think one of the important things that we don't discuss is that nature is is and always has been dynamic. Species have always moved around. I mean, we've accelerated that with colonization and people moving across the world. It's introduced more species and spread species out more than ever. But the role that humans play is kind of a different matter because we think we're these predators, but we see that human predation has very different effects to natural predators or to non-human predators. We don't mimic the effects that apex predators have. We inspire fear, but not in the same ways that, that apex predators do. They're very different effects. At least that's what research says at the moment. Mm-hmm. 
animals have a different fear response in regards to humans? What does that mean? Yeah, so humans inspire fear like predators do in prey as well, but humans are inherently unpredictable. So there's a different kind of avoidance that occurs when humans inspire fear. There's this kind of like really mass scale avoidance, whereas predator and prey, there's a much finer scale avoidance. So there's some evidence that prey learn to avoid predators and they avoid them on finer scales, whereas when it's a human disturbance, wildlife just leave. They just kind of that's recent research coming out of the United States saying that even even small scale human disturbance just results in animals not being in the parts of national parks where humans are. Interesting. And that's presumably a learned response or Yeah, I think yeah. it's it's to lethal and non-lethal human disturbances, yeah. Yeah, wow. And so even just our being there can change an ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really interesting research coming out as well that's showing that just human presence shifts animals to nocturnality, just makes them completely nocturnal, stops them being present during the day. There's this complete like uh, spatiotemporal segregation between human activity and animal activity that's that's really not what you see between, say, apex predators and prey species. Incredible. What sort of animals become nocturnal? Really diverse kinds. So there's a meta-analysis by uh, Caitlin Gaynor from the University of British Columbia that shows it's animals like sun bears and elephants and uh, predators like cats and dingoes and mountain lions. It's a massive paper with about 100 or so species, I think. And that's just to protect themselves? Yeah, just just to get away from people, yeah. Wow. Are there other examples? How else... Do species change their behaviour to avoid humans? Yeah, so Caitlin Austin, who did her PhD with Daniel Ramp um, a couple of years ago, was working on how human disturbance influences kangaroo behaviour. And what she found in her PhD thesis is that where kangaroos are disturbed by people, where they're shot, where they're persecuted, that the joeys won't come out of the pouch to play anymore. So they almost stay exclusively within the pouch. It's unclear why, but it seems like a response to disturbance. They're just cessation of all play and they won't leave the pouch because it's too risky, presumably. Mm. So there's a real diverse way in which humans are shaping wildlife and preventing them from engaging in even just basic behaviours like play or foraging or being present in a territory that they normally would be. So what about plants? When we see an introduced plant thriving here, Mm. perhaps even taking over, killing other species, how do we approach that and how do you think we should approach that? Yeah, plants are a challenging one. I'm no botanist and we don't really have a botanist on the team either. We don't have a plant scientist. But I think, at least to me, there's kind of two differences in the approaches. The resistance to killing, to me, comes from killing and pain and sentience and that sort of thing that hasn't been proven in plants. Um, Then the other aspect is that idea that, that we should just let nature be how it is or we should change nature. It's kind of this dichotomy choice we have to make about whether we these these plants in Australia have similar or different effects versus where they are natively. It's not, not really sure if that's the case or not. And there's not much research on that either. But introduced plants do, do play important roles. There's things like lantana, which is, you know, one of the most, I guess, hated plants in Australia is a really important habitat refuge for things like skinks in Australia to prevent them being predated upon by animals like cats. So these plants do have important roles here. It's just understanding whether that's different or similar to their native range. And I guess the value judgment can be a little different, seeing as you're not exactly inflicting pain on plants. It's an inherently different idea, but it's whether you want to be in control or let that nature go, I suppose. So in regard to conservation, What do you say to people when they say we should have an evidence-first approach, a science-first approach to conservation 
and not let our feelings about sentience or animals get in the way of that. Yeah, so I think that's a good point. And I think that a lot of Australia's wildlife management that's conducted by national parks, the government is not evidence-based. They're going against evidence by poisoning predators, by, by trying to remove them. There's no evidence that that actually works or creates benefits. And in regards to feelings, I don't think that an objection to killing a sentient animal is necessarily feelings. I think it's an ethical obligation to be engaged and to make sure that we're not harming other animals around us. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily a feelings-based approach, but an ethical obligation to try and reduce harm to the world. Which presumably is the end goal of everyone, I suppose. It's ultimately, yeah. that's, that's what conservation is trying to do. Absolutely. It's a disagreement about how to get there, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You sent me a paper about native species and their fear response to introduced animals. Yeah. Right? Can you yeah. tell me a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So... There's this idea that when you're an introduced predator, you have inherently different effects on your prey than you would a native predator. So it's outlined in the prey naivety hypothesis, which suggests that because prey species and a predator haven't shared a long period of evolution, that prey won't recognize the predator as a threat. So what we did is we took a lot of predation risk experiments where what they do is they expose small mammals to the, the scent, scat, fur, urine of a predator. And then the idea is that small mammals will respond in a particular way based on whether they're native or not. So if they're a native predator, you would predict that they would be more vigilant after you add the scent. They would recognize that that's a threat and they would behave appropriately. But what we found is there was no difference in the response of small mammals to predators based on whether they were native or introduced. So it seems like prey are unable to recognize whether their predators are introduced or native. It doesn't seem to matter to them. What they recognize instead is things like body mass. They're more scared of larger predators. There's no relationship between whether a predator is native and how responsive prey is. Yeah. And that goes against conventional thought, right? Yeah, that goes against conventional thought. So the prey naivety hypothesis is is like a key mechanism to predator-driven decline in Australia. So it's that that lack of a fear response is suggested to have caused decline across Australia and ongoing as well. Is there ever a lack of a fear response? Because I, I saw the dodos were mentioned in the paper and Darwin mm. saying you could just walk up to these stupid birds and club them, right? Yeah. Is that an example of a lack of a fear response? Um, I mean, lack of fear responses do occur, but we don't seem to see them in response to whether a predator is native or not. Sometimes there's, there's, there's a lot of complex mechanisms in predator-prey ecology that we don't really yet understand. Sometimes there's a lack of fear, and we generally see that in predators that are avoiding each other quite heavily. Sometimes there'll be really heavy spatiotemporal avoidance where they're never active at the same place in the same time, but there won't be a fear response when they're at those places that they share with that predator. And that's just a mechanism that's been observed. There's no explicit study as to why that occurs as of yet. You know. So what would you like to see changed in the way that uh, Australia deals with introduced species? Yeah, the main thing for me, I think, is the cessation of 1080 poisoning. I think that that's an ineffective use of taxpayer money. I think it doesn't achieve the goals that it sets out to do. It doesn't save small mammal species. It actually puts them in greater danger of predation by eliminating dingoes. And I would like to see a shift towards science that is trying to identify conditions where uh, native and non-native species can coexist, because that seems like a more ethical and a more realistic goal for uh, Australia moving forward as a biodiverse nation. Thank you, Dr. Eamon Worcester, for speaking with me. 
Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. We are in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can listen to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Lawrence Bull. Thanks for listening. <laughs>